This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, I am Theta, this is the Not Quite Daily Show, and we are at episode 6 of the winter 2018 season, talking about episode 6 of Darling in the Franks. Today's episode brings the threat of the third ride, first introduced at series beginning, right into the spotlight. And it turns out to be true. And also not true. But the biggest event of the episode is not surviving the third ride, or surviving the giant attack, but a decision that Hero makes about his purpose. We'll go over that at length in goals, but first, let's get right to the walkthrough. The first images of this episode are of ruined, weathered buildings out in the waste, lighted by a huge, fiery sun setting on the horizon. These buildings look very much like modern skyscrapers that have been abandoned and left to disintegrate in the world. The impending dark of night and the Klaxosaurs effortlessly destroying these man-made structures are foreboding images, as if implying that the time of mankind is itself waning, and its night will soon descend. We then switch to the plantations, and the announcements mixed with the exterior shots give us a timetable and a stage for the events that are about to unfold, followed by Hachi's observation that the huge cube with horns is likely an actual Klaxosaur. The threat is further ramped up when Hachi admits that he's never seen one like it, and a brief graphic follows giving both the series and episode title screens. Anyone familiar with anime will recognize that big things are in store for an episode that skips its opening credits. What's more, the episode title, which is usually only shown at the end, is shown here instead. And it matches the series title itself. Now it's only 30 seconds of the episode to get to that point, but that is more than enough to tell even a casual viewer that something pretty serious is about to go down. The storm we felt building all of last episode did not dissipate with the rain. It is still coming, and it's going to be a big one. Now the characters feel this ominous atmosphere themselves. Ichigo is taking a bath, cleansing herself, and she smacks herself in an effort to get focused. Goro and Hiro are next shown in their room, evidently not even yet dressed, and are both kind of lost in thought. Goro questions Hiro once more about fighting, but as we pointed out in episode four, Hiro's fate to pilot a third time with Zero Two was already set in motion. Goro doesn't find it any less foolish, and really, from his perspective, it is foolish, but it seems he will still guard Hero's secret. Then we move to the girls' changing room, as they further inform us that the Klaxosaur numbers are even less encouraging, and Kokoro openly wonders if they'll even return from the battle. Miku is still pouting over the snub she feels they suffered at the hands of the 26ers. You know, I think she's probably cured of her crush on their leader. Finally, Ichigo is as lost in thought as Goro was, and seems to be absentmindedly touching her lip, presumably remembering the unfortunate kiss. While the other six members are focused on the fight ahead, she and Goro are more consumed by worry over Hiro. Each of them has extra reasons to fear for his well-being. Finally, we are listening to the boys discussing the upcoming fight. 
We've now progressed from Ichigo bathing to Goro and Hiro in pajamas to the girls getting dressed to the guys being dressed, moving us through their preparations and giving us visual cues that the clock toward the impending conflict is moving forward. The boys likewise discuss the threat of the upcoming battle and still bristle a bit over the perceived slight from the other squad. I'll probably point it out again, but Mitsuru grows on me a lot this episode. He's being very level-headed during this moment of extreme nerves and chastises Otome a bit for his fixation on the 26th squad, saying that's not who you should be fighting. Ichigo and Goro get to break from the rest of the group and talk about the thing that is only bothering each of them. Now, I don't know if Goro understands what he feels about the situation and about Ichigo in particular. And it's entirely possible that I've read too much into it, but as we've observed before, he becomes very serious and focused when it comes to piloting. This is no time for how he feels, not with the mission and his friend's life on the line. He makes sure that Ichigo has to broach the subject and excuses himself. The conversation that follows does not sound like two longtime friends swapping words of encouragement or caution. It sounds like a schoolgirl having an unexpected moment to speak to the senpai she crushes on and tries to make up reasons to continue the conversation. Sleep well? No. Oh, uh, me neither. Uh, some weather, huh? Yeah. Dry and hot, like every day before it. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't know what it is that she's hoping he'll say here, and she gets her hopes up a moment when he speaks her name, but he's just giving the same encouragement that he thinks she is waiting to hear and wanting to give to him. Now, whatever she is working up to gets a little derailed by Zero Two wandering by and Hero's change in focus, so she tries something different. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> like a sibling? Really? So I think Ichigo wants to tell Hiro not to pilot, but her confusing feelings are interfering. She should be able to warn a squad member of danger, right? But on some level, she knows she has ulterior motives, and she already told him she would back off. Now, she made that promise before realizing how indifferent Zero Two might be to Hiro's fate, so she should be able to reason that, with new information, there is no conflict with her voicing her fears. And this may even be what she intended and was trying to lead into by reminding him of how close they've been in life, how long they've been companions, and thus the like a sibling's line. But when he repeats it back to her, she knows that's not what she wants. It's not really what she feels, and that's as far as she can go. And really, can you be honest with someone about what they're doing wrong when you aren't being honest about how you're feeling? Anyway, because Ichigo is not just a leader to Hiro, and not just a sister either, she is unable to say what she wants to say. Hiro plays accidental wingman to Goro, uh, but by the time she gets back to him, she has recomposed herself and she goes for the next best solution, plan to keep Hiro out of the fight as much as possible. Now Zero Two awaits Hiro, and takes the episode out of this build-up phase by telling him, and us, that it's time. The next part begins with the Squad 13 Franks all begin rolling out against a cavalcade of techno babble and environmental details. Clear skies, a lovely 73 degrees in Fahrenheit, and the wind blowing from the northeast at 81 meters per second. What? That's over 180 miles per hour. That's like way above Category 5 hurricane winds. I'm gonna guess there's a decimal missing in there or some wonky translation or something. Anyway, the camera point of view gives us a nice establishing shot of the battlefield and the arrangement of the Franks upon it. Strelesia in her own rear unit, the other 13ers in the backup, and the 26ers out in front, with the mass of the Klaxosaurs in the distance, all in a straight line with the bulwark reinforced pipeline behind them. 
The mystery of the target beta Klaxosaur is bantered a bit, and we learn that the 26 liter is code 090. The rough battle plan laid out, it's time to turn on some metal and start thrashing. We get a taste of Squad 26's vaunted coordination as they lay waste to three of the smaller ones, only allowing four to get through? You got less than half? It seems like they have a very cautious fighting style, uh, minimizing the chance of damage themselves. Using all five units to kill one enemy is safe, no doubt, but it's not very fast when you've got literally hundreds to deal with. Regardless, this at least means our 13th squad won't be sitting out. They continue to be sore about being treated as a liability, but Mitsuru again has a level head here and reminds them that they are a very green unit. As if to confirm his words, they engage the four Klaxosaurs and immediately get into trouble as each of them appears to try doing their own thing. Team Delphinium to the rescue though, demonstrating why they are the double-digit elites, rescuing Janista and reorganizing their fight into something less chaotic. 090 doesn't fail to notice either, and wonders about the oddity of having two teen codes in a makeshift test team. Overlooking these contrasting styles and squads is Team Stralesia. Hero is struggling to keep it together, while Zero Two is struggling to be patient. She comments on the difference in the two squads in the detached way that we've kind of become accustomed to. She sounds more like a spectator at a sporting event than a teammate in said event. Hero, though, grows more concerned immediately. Zero Two relays her anticipation about joining the fray, smiling all the while, and this prompts Hero to ask her why she fights the Klaxosaurs. Now, in theory, Hero shouldn't need to ask. She's a pistol, the Franks are for killing Klaxosaurs, it's what Papa orders them to do, and so on. She doesn't need a reason, right? But Hero has noticed her enthusiasm. He may even have noticed that she could probably do as she pleased if push came to shove, or even just flee the society altogether. So he does ask, and it turns out Zero Two has some things she's not ready to trust Hero with. She gives him the side eye. This question was unexpected. I think she's being on guard here, but it's deliberately shot so that we can't see enough of her face to gauge her expression. There's no eyebrow or mouth lines to show concern or anger or sadness or boredom or confusion. All we know is that the question has a sobering effect on her enthusiasm. There does at least seem to be a bit of resignation to her voice when she answers, because I'm a monster, maybe? Now we will return to this later on, but what we can note right now is that she is not completely confident in her answer. Maybe she doesn't like to spend time dwelling on it. Maybe she's never been asked that question. Maybe she just isn't ready to tell him everything. So she turns the question on Hero. Turns out he doesn't have that great of an answer either. What he says basically boils down to, because I'm supposed to. And she is not impressed by his duty and wants to make sure that's the only reason and then calls it lame. We will go over this again in goals, but even though her answer was incomplete, it still hinted at a personal reason to fight an actual motive that comes from self-determination. His answer isn't personal at all. It comes completely from outside himself. She's right, that is lame. Luckily, this episode marks a change in Hero going forward, but we'll get to that. Because of his worry over Zero Two's comments about the squad, he suggests that they move out. This, even though no one called for them, and even though he promised he would keep Zero Two in check. Unfortunately, there's no one to keep him in check when he thinks there's a need for his heroics. So, Strelesia bursts onto the scene and decides to show him how it's done. Evidently, she was trained in the King Leonidas school of combat. Now, one thing I really wish we knew at this point, but what contributes to their success here? Is it Strelesia's capability as a Franks? Zero Two's aptitude as a pistol? Or Heroes as a stamen? 
some compatibility between all three, would the two of them be just as effective in a different Franks? Or is that even possible? Do they have to be matched pistol to Franks like we've wondered before? I guess what I'm wondering is, how much of this display has to do with Hero's abilities, and how much of it is just what Zero Two and Strelizia are normally capable of? Either way, we are definitely supposed to notice the comparison with the other squads. Because she is reckless, and fights in a way that would not be conducive to coordination with others, and yet she eliminates the Klaxosaurs at a rate the 26ers seem incapable of matching. But their coordination is not worthless, as they then demonstrate another tactic that requires careful teamwork. The 13ers, at least, are impressed. Well, except for Zorome, still feeling very insecure. And despite how flashy it looks, Strelizia's success seems to come with a price, as Hero begins struggling and the connection between them seems to weaken. You know, I really like what they did with the sound design here and later on, where they represent the weaker connection with the sounds of straining metal or frozen joints. It gives the impression that when the robot is more connected to its pilots, it behaves more like an organic being. But when that connection suffers, it seems more like a machine again. It's interesting that Zero Two prompts him to go further here. Now we can see that the blue veins have spread to his neck and face, and yet she almost chides him asking if that's all he's got, and then telling him, yes, good, that's the way, when he digs deep and keeps going. She has to know that it's straining him, and has to know that this is the same path she's watched other partners walk down, but she doesn't pull up. In fact, she's annoyed when Ichigo intervenes and orders them back out of the fight. I think she wants Hiro to get to that breaking point, but I don't think it's malicious. Uh, we'll return to this point in the very last part. Now, the scrub Klaxosaurs seem largely dealt with, and so we move on to our next part, and the main event, Target Beta. Now in this third part, we get a little bit of announcer commander chatter here at first, to note that the other lines of defenses have been broken, and that the squads have been resupplied. I think we're supposed to understand that time has elapsed while they dealt with all the smaller Klaxosaurs. Whatever they hope to learn by saving this target until last has not come to pass, and it's time to try to stop it from getting any closer. We get a repeat of our electric lasso routine from the 26ers, and it does seem to stop target beta, for a time. Or maybe actually it just pisses it off, because the thing seems to shriek in Klaxosaurus, and decides the box with horns look has run its course. What follows is, well, actually really cool. The animation in this series is occasionally sketchy. Uh, I'm not blind to it, I still like the series, but I often feel like we have a B team and an A team when it comes to animating, both for fight scenes and regular day-to-day -day stuff. But they for sure got the A team to work on this Klaxosaur, especially its shape-shifting. This Klaxosaur also represents a little bit of a deviation from what we've seen. The others to this point have largely mirrored animal designs, even ancient animals, uh, but this one is box-shaped, then humanoid, then a weaponized battering ram. It seems less like some kind of technology run amok in the animal kingdom, and more like something specifically arising from man-made designs. I'm not sure if that's significant or just an artistic choice, but this thing's size and the kind of ingenious shape-shifting really ramp the threat level up. Now, after it brushes off the 26ers' attack, Zotome gets a moment to shine, saving their leader from being crushed. It seems that the rivalry and bad blood between the squads is not going to turn into tragedy, as having Zorome show them up by saving one of them is about as wholesome resolution as you could hope for. Now, although the 13ers outside of Strelizia have not pulled their weight yet, this brief show of competence and awareness and teamwork 
gives the audience a little suggestion that maybe they are competent after all. Maybe they can succeed where the 26th squad has failed. As they discuss what they can do to take on Target Beta, the differing sets of priorities begin to emerge. Most of the squad is focused on stopping the threat, Zotome still wants to show up the other team, and yet Ichigo is still determined to keep Hiro out of it as much as possible. The others are rightly mystified, because if there was ever a time for your trump card, this giant blue ogre is it, but she can't admit to the group what she's thinking. She couldn't admit it to Hiro in privacy, so she certainly can't do it here. She is trying to walk the line between her job as the leader and her desire to protect Hiro, and right now they are pulling in opposite directions. Luckily, Gobro bails her out, giving a rational explanation for her orders that still accomplishes the goal of keeping Hiro out of the fight until the last second. She thanks him for covering for her, but he just wants her to focus. Dude is such a professional. Speaking of professional, I do want to comment on something that I think the series does well during these scenes. We've noted before how that when they're connected, the girls all speak as if they were the Franks itself, while the guys still speak with their face and voice. Well, something else they do several times throughout this is overlay the guy's portraits over the Franks they are in if they have a speaking line, sometimes stacking multiple such windows into one frame. It's a small thing, but I think it really helps keep track of where each of these 10 squad members is during the fight, and who is doing the speaking, something that could easily become muddled. Anyway, Squad 13 does its best to set up target beta for a killing blow as Trelezia faces down the approaching threat. We can hear heroes struggling with the pain, and perhaps for the very first time, Zero Two asks after him and whether he hurts. She is gentler this time, asking after his well-being, but still explains to them that they must continue, that this won't end until they kill that thing. He assures her that he can keep going, and so they will. The other 13ers kneecap Beta, and Strelesia plummets into the center of its mass like a meteorite. They attempt to penetrate its thick skin, and Hero's straining under the effort causes the blue veins to creep rapidly up over more of his face. They strike, and Hero believes they have done it, losing consciousness as that last effort puts him over the edge. His purpose complete, he lets go of whatever willpower kept him together to that point. It was worth the sacrifice though, right? To... what did he say? To protect Papa and all the adults in the plantations? Even if he dies, this is the purpose he was born for, right? And it's all worth it, since they defeated the Klaxosaur, and saved everyone's lives, and... Ah, crap. Now after another kind of awesome transformation bit, we now have a rocket-powered battering ram as an enemy. Strelizia is once again doing the straining metal thing, and we can see the blue and orange X's scattering over her face that indicate a struggling connection. Unable to move, Strelizia eats the attack and gets embedded in the wall, and this puts the strain connection over the edge. It fails, and Strelizia converts immediately into the beast form we saw in episode 1. A quick switch to the command center shows a graphic displaying the failed connection with a stampede warning at the end of the meter. It seems then that the stampede that Nana mentioned back in the first episode really was linked to this beast form and Zero Two solo piloting. So that confirms a lot of stuff in one go. Now Nana and Hachi are upset, but I don't think they're surprised. Hachi laments that they ran out of time now, but that implies that they expected to run out of time at some point. I guess they were assuming there would come a time when Hero was out of commission and the connection would break, they just hoped it would happen after the day was won. A Hero potentially being dead begins to dawn on the squad. Goro and Ichigo, who knew the threat wasn't over, are the first to assume the worst and become frantic, but the rest soon follow. 
The fatal third piloting that they'd all thought was a non-issue suddenly returns to the fore. The thought of Hiro's death is too much for Ichigo, whose connection breaks, and she immediately begins blaming herself. This is exactly the thing we talked about being a worry for this battle. It's bad enough to worry after a loved one in a life or death situation. Knowing the threat could have been prevented, or at least believing it could be, that's a different type of stress entirely. Mix that with her own confusing feelings that she probably already harbors some guilt over, well, her losing it here is less about her being weak and more about her being human. She's done a largely admirable job putting aside what she wants and feels to play the role of leader, a role that may have been meant to be Hiro's. I've wondered before, but do you think Ichigo would be the leader if Hiro hadn't washed out or whatever happened? The flashes we saw of them as children and some of the other Parasite's comments make it seem like Hiro was the anointed one. I realize that Ichigo's number is actually lower than his, and we know the numbers have at least something to do with competence. But I've wondered if Ichigo is leading because of Hiro. I wonder if she sees herself as taking over his role for him. Like, she doesn't necessarily want to lead, but if Hiro isn't going to do it, she doesn't want to see someone else in the role. Leading the squad might be a manifestation of the love she feels toward him. I wonder all this because it's bad enough to give orders to your squad that get them hurt or killed. That's something military commanders have had to bear throughout history. But how much worse if you didn't want to lead in the first place? If you just wanted to keep your friend's place safe and secure, should he ever be ready to take it back? And then you give the order that gets that friend killed? I mean, this seems to be what she's struggling with here. She wanted to tell him not to pilot, but all these conflicting allegiances and duties and feelings kept her from crossing that line. Now, there isn't anything specific that makes me think she doesn't want to be the leader. Like I've pointed out a few times, she largely does a pretty good job, but not dealing with her feelings on the matter is a major flaw, and it has now reared up to potentially cause disaster during a crisis. That is definitely not being a good leader. If she intends to continue in the role, she will have to confront everything she's feeling and why, and she'll need to do it soon. But not like immediately, because as Goto points out, this is no time to be crying. The dead are dead. For the moment, concern yourself with the living. And the dead concern themselves with the dead. We join Hiro in what seems like a recreation of the day that he and Naomi were supposed to leave the plantation, the day he met Zero Two. They drop all of the music and other sound out of the scene and turn the color saturation almost all the way down, rendering the atmosphere in monochrome. Now Hiro seems to know he's died, and the first thing he does is justify his death to himself, saying that he did everything he could, right? And then Naomi is there, disparaging him for this, accusing him of feeling satisfied and giving up all by yourself, and not even listening to his partner. The fact that it's her saying this suggests that he did something similar with her. Maybe rather than seeing how far they could go as a team, he gave up once he thought he'd gone as far as he could. He says it's not the same situation, and what's more, he's sure Zero Two can keep fighting without him. It's how she's fought all this time. But Naomi wants to know if that's really enough, and he rattles off the reasons that it is. His goals of being helpful and piloting a Franks, the purpose for which he was born, and says that he has no regrets. He even smiles as though content. Yeah, liar. It seems he forgot all those things he said to Zero Two back in episode four. Shall we uh, run through that again?
Now though, well, we'll revisit this in goals, but Hero apparently had already written out his story in his mind. The end goal was to pilot the Franks and protect the plantations, the purpose he's always been told he exists for. Knowing the third time is fatal with Zero Two, and knowing that the Blue Heart is not exactly normal, he has perhaps decided that the story ends with him dying to save everyone. He expects death. He just hopes he can forestall it long enough to save the day. Once he does, as far as he knows anyway, the story ends and he's played his part. But of course, that's a story with no other characters in it. What about the squad mates that have been his comrades? What about Ichigo and Goto, lifelong companions? What about the partner he's leaving behind? He finds himself looking over a strange tree with Zero Two in front of him, but he still interprets this as part of his story, believing that she's come to bid him goodbye, helping his story find closure. Now we'll go back over what he says here later on, but for now we'll observe that her sadness surprises him. I don't know if he's just surprised that she isn't there to bid him well, or surprised that she might be saddened at him leaving, or he's surprised that she's capable of being sad at all. Either way, even as the music has slowly crept back into the scene, Hero seems to be slowly creeping back to life. Now we'll come back to the scene later on, but before we leave it, I do want to wonder for just a moment, does this mean Naomi is actually dead? Like, where is Hero right now? If he's in some kind of next world, then maybe it means Naomi is dead. But if he's just in his mind, and that's just a memory, why does he see the white tree that is a feature in Zero Two's past? Is this some near-death realm that she herself has visited? Or has their connection process caused them to share some memories, and he can see a part of her history that she might otherwise have kept hidden? Because this is the same tree. It has what I'm still guessing is mistletoe up in its otherwise bare branches. And what if Naomi is dead? I commented earlier on about how the information that she was recovering in the hospital changed the type of series we were in. It's one thing if someone sympathetic like that can be crushed before our eyes. That indicates one kind of threat in the story, a threat we can assume extends to our other characters. But when they say she's alive in a situation where she clearly shouldn't be, it says we're in another kind of story, a story where our characters are probably pretty safe. Now though, perhaps we entertain a third kind of story, one in which she did die and then the children were lied to. Actually, there are clues that the adults were already lying about sending them back to the orphanage. Lying about the fate of your squad mate shouldn't be much of a stretch. That is suddenly an even more sinister story than the original one where she simply died. Now we'll just have to wait, but at this point, keeping the parasites in the dark seems like standard operating procedure. We should probably expect that something else will turn out to be a lie as well. Our final part begins as Hero returns to the world of the living. It turns out his story is not done. It turns out there are other characters in it. He realizes two things together. They didn't kill Target Beta after all, and Zero Two is in a bad way. This is such a far cry from the usual her. Whether happy or annoyed or indifferent, she's always been composed. She's never once seemed weak or desperate or unsure to Hero. So what is this? Is this the strain of piloting alone? Her eyes are red and her teeth are fanged, but she does still have the little headband on, uh, whatever that's worth. Is this then a bestial, instinctual reaction to being in mortal peril? Or is this just the her that no one else sees? Is this her when she thinks she's alone? Or when she thinks she's been abandoned? Or, and I may be reaching here, is this her when she thinks she's killed another partner? Especially one she might have started to have hopes for? To have feelings for? She cries out, why you, you're nothing but a monster. But I'm guessing that she's not calling Target Beta a monster. 
I think she's talking to herself. Her insecurity and sensitivity over people thinking she's not human is as strong as it is exactly because she fears it's true. And I think Hiro is finally picking up on this. He thinks back to her given reason for fighting, because I'm a monster, and wonders if this is always the way for her. Losing her partner, she fights on anyway, but in this desperate and destructive manner. And this changes how Hiro sees her, I think. Up until now, she has seemed like she was complete. Capable pilot, willing to fight alone despite the risk, despite injuries, incredibly powerful in combat and in person, someone both beautiful and deadly. She would be fine with him or without him, and he had just been fortunate enough to hitch his star to hers for a brief time. He even just told Naomi, I'm sure Zero Two can keep fighting without me, as though acknowledging that he was just a fleeting chapter in her life, and she'll go on as fine as she always was. But he sees her now in a way I think she doesn't like to be seen, when she's vulnerable. And he thinks back to something she said at their first meeting, I'm always alone thanks to these horns. At the time, it seemed like she meant that she was an outsider. The horns were a representation of her Klaxosaur blood, the thing that made her an other. She's different from other humans and is therefore alone. But now, I think a new meaning becomes clear. She's alone because she can't help but kill her partners. Thanks to these horns is just a way of saying thanks to my nature. She's not alone because society ostracizes her. It's not some outside force that she is a victim of. She's alone through her own nature, through her own actions. And that is a much more terrible thing to bear. So this is why she wanted him to pilot anyway, despite the risk. To dig deep, to push through the pain, because she can't change her nature. Maybe that's a distant goal, we'll talk about that, but for now, she is the way she is. Her lonely existence has only one solution. She has to find a partner who can survive her. Losing yet another candidate, and one she seems especially fond of, has rendered her completely desperate and completely vulnerable. And how does Hero react to this vulnerability? She's not the invincible goddess he thought. She has flaws and shortcomings and chinks in her armor. She's incomplete. And this does not repel him. Rather, it compels him. She has a need, and he sees all at once that he could fill it. She has then given him something else, something more substantial than anything she's given him to this point. She gives him a purpose. So, accepting this purpose, accepting the fate of the blue heart and the changing blood and the risks of being with her, all the potential and current pain and fear, accepting all this, the blood is no longer poison. His mind is no longer divided. She is no longer alien. He'd been willing to die for his original purpose, but for this new purpose, he has to be willing to live. To this point, the potential for death has been an obstacle to what he thought he wanted. The risk of piloting with Zero Two was a necessary evil to be able to pilot at all. Deciding that piloting with her is what he actually wants means that the risk of death isn't a force in opposition to his purpose, but is simply part of it. Piloting isn't the point. Being with her, being her wings, that is the point. Now I'm sure people are interpreting his return to life as an example of the power of love, but I think I would contend that this is really the power of purpose. Thus arisen, he calms Zero Two. The knowledge that she's not alone seems to bring her back to her senses. She changes from raving beast back into girl, and Strelizia does the same. And now, her partner not dead, and his purpose dependent on his own survival, they are even more formidable. Target Beta is no longer an insurmountable threat, and they interrupt its barrage with extreme prejudice. 
Now everyone suddenly realizes that this means Hero is alive. In the command center, his vitals return to normal. And the doctor finally shows back up to be interested in our show again. Nice of you to join us. But the day is not yet won, and Target Beta attempts to shift forms and resume its assault. The 13ers snap out of their daze, and they try the plan they used against the Worm Claxosaur, keeping it from protecting its core from attack. They call for Strelizia to once again deliver the coup de grace, but I would like to point out, Ichigo doesn't call just for Hero, but for Zero Two as well. This sets up a really nicely framed climactic moment as Zero Two and Hero get to fly and save the day. Though it's likely for effect, I do wonder what it means that giant wings made out of energy or light or something spring out of Beta's body after they destroy the core. I mean, others see it and it seems to interact with the world. There's been a lot of thematic use of wings and flights and birds, uh, but these are actual wings of a kind. Will wings turn out to be more than rhetoric then? Is there some actual type of flight that we're building toward, like actual wings to be had? I don't know, but it gets me wondering for sure. Now the Doctor finally has something to contribute, commenting that Hero might just make Zero Two's wish come true. Uh, we will revisit that in Goals. Our two main characters have a few moments alone after their success, and this brief scene has a real feeling of intimacy to me. It's almost pillow talk, to keep that analogy going. Hero is recalling their earlier quiet moment, when they gave their reasons for piloting. He has a new reason, one she probably doesn't find quite as lame. He wants to be her wings, though he doesn't know if he can continue to survive it. She seems to think he'll be fine, though. Some kind of threshold has been crossed, I think, and she either knows it or senses it. Hero then restates the Gian Bird metaphor from episode one. But this time, rather than saying that they are pitiful creatures, he says that when a male and female pair lean on each other and act as one, they can fly as high and as far as they want. This while he and Zero Two are themselves leaning on each other. What I think is worth pointing out is not that the obvious point that they are a gin bird pair now, but rather the way in which Hero's attitude about the gin bird has changed. Zero Two, if you recall, acknowledged that they were imperfect and incomplete creatures, but still found their way of life to be beautiful. And this is how she still has felt all along. She needs a partner, and lacking one makes her imperfect and incomplete. It makes her the desperate thing clawing at the inside of the cockpit. Having a partner, though, even if it means being incomplete otherwise, is an idea she finds beautiful, a way of life she would love to have. Hero, though, hasn't felt this way. Partnership has been a means for him, not an end in itself. If he could fulfill his original purpose alone, he would. If he could fly on his own, he would. It's only just now, being Zero Two's partner, really being her partner, that he finds the Gin Bird situation a little more tolerable, maybe even desirable. The two of them emerging from the cockpit is a visual callback to the first episode as well. And like his attitude on the Gin Bird, it demonstrates a change in their story. The first time he and Zero Two pilot together, they emerge from Strelizia in the golden light of sunset. He is unconscious, and she supports him with his arm around her shoulders. This is seemingly the beginning of descent for Hero. Piloting a third time will claim him, and so his day will be done. That first piloting is like the sun going down on his life, in the same way the sun is literally going down in the scene. In a way, this is actually what has happened. The person he was, and his original goal, both ended during the previous night. Zero Two's intrusion into his life has brought him to this. That hero is dead, the sun has set on him for the last time. This new hero, though, emerges from Strelizia on his own two feet, 
supporting Zero Two with her arm around his shoulders, except they are both conscious, both supporting the other. And they once again emerge into golden light, but this is the golden light of morning, of sunrise. The night is behind them, and the day is new. We then have a nice little camaraderie here at the end. The other 13ers gather around to congratulate and celebrate with Hiro. Normally antagonistic Zohome is right in the thick of it with an affectionate headlock. Ichigo, having believed Hiro lost, finally can't keep her emotional displays on lock and cries against him, surprising everybody, except Goro, I think. With any luck, her ability to be honest in this moment will mean she takes an honest look at herself in the near future as well. The celebration and general relief extends to our 26ers as well, shown joining the rest in the show of respect and kind of patching things up. An altogether satisfying end to what seemed an insurmountable threat. But the episode doesn't quite end there. Zero Two is still apart from the rest, looking on at their socializing, and then looks up at Strelizia and says, I have to kill more and more Klaxosaurs. We'll talk about that some more in a second, but I want to point out that it comes immediately after Hiro talks about how being her wings and leaning on her might be his purpose in life. And then one final surprise, as we see three figures crouched below a Franks sitting up on what appears to be the defensive wall. Now we can only see the shins of the Franks, but it is white just like Strelizia. The camera then closes in on the speaker amongst the three, and we see that it is the central figure in that image from the opening credits that I have been guessing are the Nines. Looking at the wider shot, I'm guessing that the other present are the two guys to his left in the picture. He then says, you're certainly hitting it off, Nine Iota. Well, we'll talk about this in speculation, since we have nothing conclusive at the moment, but the only person it makes sense for him to be addressing is Zero Two. I feel pretty confident that this confirms some things for us, but, but we'll get to that. As this is how the episode ends, I think we can count on these guys entering the story soon, probably next episode. So in goals, important things to discuss, big shakeup, much wow. Now I called the last part of this episode, Hero Reborn. I wasn't being melodramatic. Well, I wasn't only being melodramatic. But what I mean by that goes beyond him seeming to die and then return to life an arguably bigger change happens in his goals. Now we've talked before about how he has these two goals, to fly free and to find a place to belong. Sometimes these two goals are in sync, such as when he gets the opportunity to pilot again thanks to Zero Two, as this lets him fly and also includes him in the squad that he feels he belongs with. But as we've observed before, it's possible that these goals might one day be at odds. Well, that didn't quite happen here. Something more dramatic happened he actually completes his goal of belonging, as we can see in the conversation he has with Naomi and Zero Two while he's dead or knocked out or whatever. He belongs, is in exactly the place he thought he should be, and is able to sacrifice his own life because it means reaching his goal in complete and final fashion. And then he discovers that it wasn't enough. This goal doesn't fulfill him, completing it does not make his life feel complete. And in the confusion this brings him, he finds a new goal, to be Zero Two's wings. Now, because of the nature of Zero Two and how she's basically individualism incarnate, she was always going to be incompatible with his goal of belonging, at least long-term. Indeed, her presence and the friction introduced was already isolating him from his closest friends. Of course, there is his other goal, to fly free. While belonging and Zero Two don't mix very well, Flying Free and Zero Two seem to go hand in hand. 
there was always a chance that he would have to choose between his goals and his newfound relationship with Zero Two. The trick to how this played out, though, was that he didn't have to give something up. He got to see his idea of belonging to its end and discovers that he wants a different goal instead. Like I said in the walkthrough, and Hero himself says at the end, he has purpose now, and it concerns Zero Two. His lame answer as to why he fights was his purpose, but a purpose given to him, a justification for his own existence. It came from outside. Now his purpose is being Zero Two's partner. As he says to her, he's found a new reason to pilot Franks. This one comes from inside. With this, he can also put his metaphorical representation as the two-winged but injured bird behind him. Meeting his fate of being crushed for trying to do it on his own, he ultimately rejects it and embraces the gin bird fate instead. Now, no one else in the universe knows this has changed about him, though Zero Two probably has an idea. Hero is going to look the same on the outside and may seem the same, but what drives him going forward will be different. He doesn't have two goals in potential conflict. He has two goals that go together. In fact, they may now be inseparable. Hero is a man with purpose, and he has hitched his fate to Zero Two. He is, in essence, reborn. We'll talk a little more about that in theme, too. I just want to reiterate that this goal completion and new goal acceptance of Heroes is potentially the biggest thing that happened in this episode, because we should expect it to direct his actions and priorities in the future. This may bring him into conflict with his squadmates, his commanders, or even the entire society by the end. And it would have started here, when he gave up belonging and chose Zero Two instead. Now, while Hero's goal shifting is the biggest news, it's not the only movement in goals. We wrote way back in the first episode that there were two unknown goals, one for Zero Two and one for the Doctor. Now, the Doctor seemed like he disappeared, and I even began to wonder if something happened to the voice actor and they wrote him out or something. But he's back now and has probably been busy pursuing this very unknown goal. Although we don't know anything about it, really, his showing back up when Hero survives the third piloting and the comments he makes suggests to me that his own goal is probably linked to Zero Two and Strelizia, and maybe any potential match for them as well, which will now mean that Hero is drawn into his plans. The same goes for Zero Two. Now, we gave her the specific goal of flying free, and now Hero, of course, attached to that goal as well. So, in a way, his own goal shuffling has probably advanced her fly free goal, bringing it one step closer to completion. But she also has an unknown goal, and we got the first hints toward it this time. The first clue is during their conversation about fighting the Klaxosaurs. When asked for a reason to fight, she's a little guarded, and finally just puts forward that she's a monster. The Doctor, like we mentioned, says that Hero might be able to make Zero Two's dream come true. And then, at the very end, she says that she has to kill more and more Klaxosaurs. Now, Hero had observed how happy she seemed to get by killing them, how eager she was to join fights. It seems that this isn't simple bloodlust, but some other reason that drives her to kill Klaxosaurs. There is some goal here, and the combination of these clues makes me think it has something to do with making her less of a monster. Now, I have no idea how her deal works, how much of her is Klaxosaur, what that really means, or how it happened. But her prickliness on the subject and her freak out in the cockpit suggests that she's not very happy to be monstrous. 
it seems believable that if there was a way to be less so, then it's a goal she would be chasing. And maybe her statement at the end means that some part of that process requires her to kill Klaxosaurs. Now, one in particular, a certain amount, every single one, who knows? I do know though, that finding a partner who can pilot with her permanently is probably a good start, and that may be what the doctor's comments mean. Now we'll still keep this as unknown for both of them, but it looks like we might start to get a sense of what these goals are and how they will help to shape our story. Also, minor movement on a minor goal, but Zotome's goal of being the best showed up this time a bit as he was largely motivated by showing up the other squad. Since they were ultimately successful, including him saving 090, this seems like progress for him. But I will note that he was exuberant over Hero surviving and succeeding at the end. So it's possible that this might morph into him wanting their squad to be the best, not just himself individually. Now in conflicts, we don't have quite as much movement as it looks like. Um, starting at the top, while the Klaxosaur threat was dealt with, you get a sense that it represents an escalation in intensity and severity. The Klaxosaur numbers are higher than they guessed, uh, one shows up that they don't have any information on, and it very nearly gets through and potentially wrecks two plantations in the process. What's more, the resourcefulness of the shape-shifting of Target Beta suggests a certain intelligence or cunning that further sharpens this threat. The immediate conflict is over, but this seems to be a conflict that is growing, not resolving. Um, in the Ichigo Fallout conflict, while she did check out mid-fight when she thought Hiro was dead, there's actually positive progress on this. I don't think she'll be able to hide from her feelings anymore, uh, and her willingness to show her vulnerability in front of the others at the end may mean that she's ready to be more open and vulnerable in general. Trying to keep Hero out of the fight, and being dazed when Hero turns out to be fine, and then of course the complete connection break in, uh, in the middle, altogether that should be a real wake-up call to her if she wants to take her role as leader seriously. If she can sort out how she feels, and figure out the root of it, and decide something to do, we might get to a point where we can take this off the board. So for the 26ers are wary and the team is not a team conflicts that I added last time, uh, well, neither of these affected the outcome in this episode. Uh, in fact, our two squads seemed to come to some understanding and respect by the end. Uh, the kissing operation won't last forever, so it may be that we don't see much more of the 26ers, and they turned out to be a means to contrast and motivate our 13th squad only. So this may be a non-conflict. Uh, the team actually fought like a team after some initial hiccups, and there was no fallout from personal conflicts aside from Ichigo's momentary break. But none of the actual issues are resolved. No one has demonstrated a willingness to talk about their own issues. There is no definite progress on how Ichigo or Goto are dealing with their feelings, or how Mitsuru is dealing with his issues, or he and Ikuno patching up their partnership, whatever caused the problem there. This conflict doesn't move, basically. Just because it didn't affect things this time doesn't mean it's gone away. For the Zero Two Devours Partners conflict, maybe this is over? Hero dies and comes back, and he seems to accept the distortion in himself if it means being with Zero Two, uh, and it recedes. Perhaps he has defeated this conflict, perhaps it will have as yet unknown side effects. Uh, we'll just note that this may end up being over. Uh, relatedly, the Blue Heart Yellow Blood conflict, Hero's body did something with those blue veins. Did he absorb them? Are they now normal to him? 
Did his body fix them, if that's the right word? Uh, just like above, we don't have an answer right now, but we may find out later that this was resolved. Uh, in theme, we, we have a little structure mirroring and flight imagery that actually play together this time. Now, I mostly went over this already, but we had the sunset, sunrise mirrored scenes from the first and third times that Hero and Zero Two piloted together. And we then have the evolution of Hero's opinion of the Jin Bird pairing. His new opinion on what it would mean to be half of a Jin Bird pair is hopeful, optimistic, and those feelings are strongly associated with Sunrise. There's no accident there. The writers have practically put on a clinic in visual symbolism. Uh, we also have a little bit of individual versus society, uh, two places for sure. One is the light rivalry between the squads. I said last time that our 13ers are sort of a stand-in for the individual, placed against the 26ers who stand in for society. At first, the power multiplier of their superior organization seems to tout the 26ers over the 13ers, and the accompanying lesson is that a society can accomplish more than the sum of its parts if those parts surrender individual will. The 13ers start off each trying to do their own thing, and they trip over each other and get surrounded and need rescuing. Their individual wills cause conflict and even interfere with the wills of others. But later in the battle, when the 26ers coordinated attack doesn't work, they don't have an answer. They have no other tactic to try and they can't improvise. This almost leads to their leader's death, but the independently acting Argentia comes to their rescue and Squad 13 then takes over, trying to deal with target beta in a few different ways. This culminates, of course, in the complete individual of Strelizia being both the one that is almost lost, but also the one that saves the day. It seems the society structure is far stronger against known threats, but the individuals fare better when faced with the unknown and the need for impromptu and self-directed action. The two squads' tactics actually find a type of marriage in the final attack, where the 13ers coordinate to pull off a maneuver that they succeeded with before in order to set up Strelizia's finishing blow. This leverages the advantages of both sides, and indeed, most societies are a give and take between the two, not wholly one or the other. I thought it was really nicely done to structure the battle in such a way that the advantages and drawbacks of each could be put on display. Lastly, we have a story element that I want to associate with our flower and plant motifs, uh, but you'll have to bear with me to explain why. We had a theme of death and rebirth during our last part, with heroes seeming to die and then return in a seemingly healed state. Uh, what's more, as discussed, he comes back with a new purpose to his life. He is very much a new man. Now, death and rebirth is an incredibly common story theme across many cultures. Mythologies from the Aztecs to Norse to Japanese feature gods and goddesses who die and are reborn into something new. A lot of these types of mythologies and their associated rituals come from earlier man's attempts to explain and aid the cycle of the seasons. Nature seemed to age and wither and die each winter, only to be reborn in the spring. Thus, various beliefs and traditions were enshrined in these cultures to help ensure the world's continued fertility, to help ensure that spring returned. Supposing that the seasons mirrored some kind of deity's own death and rebirth has a kind of internal logic to it if you already believe that the world behaves as it does because gods do things or themselves change. This is the same logic as carrying flowers during a wedding ceremony, an example in our own culture that I've already referred to. Because flowers are one of the most obvious signs of springtime, 
they are associated in ancient man's mind with the world being reborn. The fact that they also turned out to be the reproductive parts of the plants just reinforced the association. Now there's another part of death and rebirth symbols that are common that I'm surprised I didn't use, and that's rain. Water in general, but rain in particular. The saying, April showers bring May flowers, is not just a setup for a stupid pilgrim joke, but an ancient understanding of causation between springtime rainstorms and the rebirth of flowers and other living things. Rain in this story seems like an especially potent symbol of fertility and rebirth as it contrasts with the never-ending desert around them. This may be, thematically, why Zero Two is so ensorcelled by it. Her fascination also tells us, though, that rain doesn't exist anywhere in her experience. So why not reinforce this theme with rain? Well, this is a reach, but I'm going to guess a couple things. One is that rain coming to this world is too powerful and unique an experience. It's the kind of thematic knockout punch that should come up at a much later date. I mean, imagine water running over the land and flowers springing up in its wake. That's a series climax kind of image, you know? So two, working from that idea, we instead have rain stand-ins. During Hero's death or whatever, he has these two dream sequences. We don't get rain, but we do get fog and then snow. Yes, neither is rain, but both are water-based meteorological effects like rain. What's more, after they defeat Target Beta, and it's just the two of them for a moment, they are standing under the cloud of its blue blood as it falls back to Earth. Uh, there's debris and twinkling lights all mixed into this. The whole effect is like they are standing under a rainstorm that's moving in slow motion. Now, is this intended? Hard to know for sure, but one half of those rain stand-ins occur during his death as he abandons one purpose for a new one, and the other half occur as he's speaking that new purpose to Zero Two, the person it concerns. At the very least, the scenes are meant to be visually linked because they both employ washed out color and contrast. So there's a visual echo that is intended there. So a thematic one makes a kind of sense as well. All right, and what to watch for? There's a few things we can cross off the list. We got to see how Hero's third piloting went, and that was basically what the last half of this episode was about. So that's answered and then some. We don't totally understand everything that happened, but we have other things we're watching for on that front already, so we'll knock this one off. I also think we can safely say that Strelesia's beast form is linked to solo piloting, considering the way it shifted after Hero's death and back again with his rebirth. Man, we still have a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, some of these I think will come up pretty soon. Uh, so in the meantime, let's add some more. Now we're watching to see why Zero Two needs to kill more and more Klaxosaurs. Like I said, I'm guessing it's attached to her unknown goal, but that's still a big question mark anyway, so no help there. We'll be watching to see who the newcomers are at the end, which I've guessed already, but I'll talk about that some more in speculation. What we're probably really watching for is why they are here at the kissing operation, especially since it doesn't seem like they were interested in joining the battle. And lastly, we'll be watching to see what the heck the Doctor has been up to for most of five episodes. Hopefully they don't just ignore this and it's somehow tied to what's coming down the line next. So in speculation, uh, I thought that Goro and Ichigo would fall apart in conflict. They only kind of did and it had nothing to do with their feelings toward each other. So I guess I'm going to leave this here, which I guess is me re-speculating that this is a thing that will happen. I added the hero will change in some fundamental way. This has happened in at least two ways. 
he absorbed or cleansed the blood or incorporated into himself or, or something. We'll have to wait to find out exactly what. Uh, the other way is that, as I waxed ad nauseum, he is fundamentally a new man with a new purpose. We'll strike this off and assume that some explanation about his physical change uh, will be forthcoming. I speculated that the 26ers would do something to endanger the 13th squad, and uh, this really didn't happen. There really wasn't any conflict with uh, consequences between the squads. Uh, heck, it's actually kind of the opposite with the camaraderie at the end and Miku and Zorame saving 090. Uh, so that's a bust. To increase my chances of more busts, we'll add some more speculation. I first want to say that I have no speculation about what happens next for Hero and Zero 02. I think the newcomers and or whatever Dr. Franks has been up to will put them into a reactive state. Uh, I'm not even going to add this, but all I speculate for them is that what I said in goals, that the two of them have hitched their fates together. Now as to our guys at the end, I've already speculated that they are the nines, and I've speculated before that Zero Two is one of them, that she is the missing ninth person from that opening credit image. I think the guy at the end is addressing her and is calling her Nine Iota. Now Iota is the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. We saw this time that they used beta to refer to target beta, so using Greek letters to number things is something they do in this universe, just like we do in ours. Because of this, I'm guessing that all the nines have code names like this. Nine alpha, nine beta, nine gamma, nine delta, etc. And zero two is the last one at nine iota. So in addition, since he's central in the picture and the one who speaks here, I'm guessing this dude is going to be nine alpha and he will be the leader of the nines, whether officially or De facto. Now I've hinted as much already, but I speculate that Zero Two's desire to kill more Klaxosaurs will be directly related to some effort to make herself less monstrous, whatever form that takes for her. I don't know how that's supposed to work exactly, but I think this is one of the things that drives her. You see, one thing I have not speculated on is what the Klaxosaurs are, or where they came from, or what they want. And after this episode, I feel like I have even less of an idea. Uh, honestly though, I'm fine with that at this point. Having a mysterious overthreat like this in speculative fiction puts all the focus back on the characters, and they seem to be handling that pretty well. So I am totally content to be patient on discovering the Klaxosaurus details. Okay, that's it. This episode felt even more like a finale than episode 4 did, so we might have something really new coming our way next week. Until then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.